Welcome to 10 Minute TechCom. This is Ryan Weber at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and I'm really excited to talk with today's guest. Hello, my name is Laura Gonzalez. I'm an assistant professor in rhetoric and writing studies at the University of Texas at El Paso. I've invited Dr. Gonzalez on the show today to talk about her recent book, Sites of Translation, what multilinguals can teach us about digital writing and rhetoric. The book is based on a lot of observations of professional translators and multilingual students as they write and translate. And Dr. Gonzalez talks with us today about how translators make meaning, how translation is relational, how they use translation tools, and what she herself has learned doing translation work in the community of El Paso. But because her work is about translation, I wanted to do something a little bit different than usual. In addition to the English language episode, I wanted to release a Spanish language version of the same interview in order to give Dr. Gonzalez a chance to talk about her work in multiple languages and to see what would happen when a scholar talks about her work in two different languages. Unfortunately, I don't speak Spanish, so Dr. Gonzalez helped me find a scholar in her field who does. Hi, my name is Patti Flores. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Texas at El Paso and the Rhetoric and Composition Studies program. Pate recorded a Spanish language version of an interview with Dr. Gonzalez based on a lot of the same questions that I ask her here. I've released both episodes, the English language version and the Spanish language version. Additionally, Laura and Pate transcribed the interview in Spanish and then translated it into English. I've also transcribed this English language episode as well. All of the transcripts are available at uahtechcomcomm.com on the podcast page. I'll include a link in the show notes. I hope that bilingual listeners can enjoy both episodes. I hope perhaps some Spanish speakers find the episode as well and give it a listen. But whatever happens, I'm excited about this project, and I really appreciate Dr. Gonzalez and Pate for putting in some extra work to make this possible. Whatever version you listen to, I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. I really appreciate you joining us today, and I really enjoyed looking through your new book, and I'm excited to ask you some questions about it. One of the things that I wanted to ask you first, your book defines this concept of a translation moment. Can you tell us what is a translation moment and can you give us a couple of examples? Sure, definitely. So translation moments is a concept that I developed in collaboration with the participants that are showcased in the book. And so when you're translating, it's kind of like the writing process, you know, you're kind of just translating smoothly from one language to another. But there's these instances where you pause because you have to make a decision about, well, what's the best word? What's the most appropriate word for this specific context? And in translation work, because language is constantly changing, these translation moments come up a lot when we're thinking about, so am I translating for a South American audience? Am I translating for a person from this particular region in Mexico? So you have to think about how to best adapt information even though you might know a couple possibilities for a translation of a specific term, you have to make a rhetorical decision about which word to use in a specific moment in time. So in a piece that I wrote with a collaborator, Rebecca Zancher, we define translation moments as instances in time when multilingual communicators pause to make a rhetorical decision about how to transform a word from one language to another. So it's not the entire process of translation, but those moments where we pause because we have to navigate certain layers of difference in order to make a decision. To give you an example, when I was working with one of the community organizations and I was observing this presentation about healthy eating for Latino communities, the presenter, Sandra, was speaking to a Spanish-speaking audience, but they were Spanish speakers from many different regions. And she was describing uh, corn on the cob as an option for something that you can feed your family. And so she was going through her presentation and then she paused when she said the word corn in Spanish. And she said, when I talked to an audience from Mexico, I used the word mazorca 
to define corn. And that's not the most appropriate term because masorca for many of people in the audience meant like a dry corn and it wasn't corn on the cob. So she paused. She kind of localized the notion of corn within that community. And then to help with her translation, she also pulled up a picture of corn on the cob. And so when I think about the rhetorical strategies that happen in translation moments, the translation moment would be signaled by Sandra's pause. And then the strategies that she used included a story about a previous presentation when people didn't understand what masorca was, even though it was a word in Spanish and they spoke Spanish, and the use of a picture. So those are the strategies that happen within the translation moment. That's really interesting. So you're talking about specifically those moments when you're translating where you have to stop and think, you know, what is the right word? For this audience, that's the translation moment. Yes. And because I was observing so many translations happening and so much is happening during translation, I needed a way to kind of ground my analysis in something that was more concrete. And so when I analyzed translation, I focused on the translation moments and on what the translators did in those moments as a way to kind of unpack the rhetorical navigation that translators do. Right. And you mentioned, you know, uh, translators have to make all these rhetorical decisions when multilingual speakers are, are writing or speaking. What kinds of decisions do they have to make? You alluded to some about audience and localization, but can you talk about kind of what kinds of decisions need to be made and how they affect the translation process? Definitely. And I think many of the decisions are maybe pretty simple grammatical decisions, right? So like what verb tense should I use? Definitely. But one of the things I noticed working really closely with translators and being a part of the community is that a lot of the decisions that translators have to make are maybe not even conscious ones. So there's this other example of another translator who was doing a verbal interpretation during a birth because her, a patient was giving birth and she was translating communication between the patient giving birth and the doctor who spoke English. And the patient giving birth spoke Spanish. She was interpreting during a birth and the doctor said, we're going to get the labor started. And the sort of textbook translation of labor into Spanish would be labor. But in that moment, she decided to say, we're going to start the nacimiento, which is the birth. So not really labor, but birth. And in having a conversation with this interpreter later, she said, you know, I'm a mom and I know how stressed out moms are in that moment. And if I said labor, like labor can mean many different things in Spanish. It can mean like people laboring outside, like working, you know, in construction or something. And so because I related to that situation of being a mom and being stressful, I decided to deviate from what might be like the textbook translation and go with something that I know would make the most sense. And so when I think about decisions that translators make in the moment is those decisions that are influenced by both who it is that they're translating for, but also their translators' own experiences, what they've lived in the past, their training, of course. But I think in those moments, all of those elements kind of come together. One of the things that you argue is that translation is, so, so three things, translation is situated, cyclical, and created. Can you talk about why you emphasize these characteristics of translation? There are many different reasons why these three particular elements of translation really popped up through my analysis. I think part of it is the fact that many of the translations that I observed and traced took place in digital environments. And so I noted a connection between technology design and digital composing and translation. So thinking about like user experience design, for example, and web design being iterative, right? Iterative design, which means you have to constantly update and go back and get feedback and make adjustments in order to have an effective product. Translation is very similar. 
just like a website needs an update, translations need updates all the time because language is alive. It changes all the time. And so you can't just have a one and done translation. The notion of creativity was also really interesting to me as a way to kind of fight back this deficit framework that's often used toward multilingual communicators as not having the right words or not knowing the right words in a specific language, um, especially when we're thinking about English. But really what I noticed is that in those moments when we don't have the right words is where we have to get creative and do something else to communicate, whether it's like draw a picture or gesture or tell a story. And so the creativity, again, came up as a way to kind of speak back to those deficit-based frameworks, but also think about all the different creative elements that go into digital composing. And then when you throw in the translation element on top of that, I think the creativity is even more enhanced. And the notion of situatedness and cultural situatedness just illustrated to me the fact that translation is always contextualized within a specific cultural moment and cultural practice within a community, at least for the participants that I was working with. I know that for automated translation and different translation projects, that may not always be the case, but for this specific type of translation work that happened in community context, the notion of being situated in the community was really important. And so those three elements kind of came up throughout the analysis. Great. Well, and let's talk about that more because I know as part of your research, you observed and you interviewed professional translators who work at the Language Services Department at the Hispanic Services Center of Western Michigan. What did you learn when you observed these translators at work? I learned many things, but I think one of the things that sticks out to me the most is just the community-driven notion of translation. Translation oftentimes is perceived as this one-and-done event. Like you pull up Google Translate, you put in a word, you hit translate, it comes out a different word. But in these community contexts, that's not how it functioned how it functioned was a community came together, the whole language services department came together to help immigrants who are coming into the United States do things like enroll in school, seek medical counsel, seek legal help. And this office began because Spanish speakers with training and translation wanted to help their community. And they did so by coming up with these mechanisms and getting training to be professional translators who could then like notarize and certify translations of medical documents, legal documents, and things like that. And so what I learned from working with this particular organization is that translation is for the community and it's done by the community, at least in this context. So it's the same people that lived in the neighborhood who then got training to become professional translators and then eventually went back to serve their community by completing the translation. So it's kind of this recursive model that sustains that community that I I had the privilege to work with. And I think that's one of the most powerful things that I learned. Yeah, it seems like one of the themes of your book coming up uh, over and over again is this idea that sort of translation is relational in a sense, that it involves sort of relationships between people and that that seems to kind of push against, like you said, that Google Translate model of I, I pop the word and it pops out as something else. And, you know, here's the word that you need. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, definitely. It is relational on so many levels, like the relationship between the translators and their languages, the relationships between translators and each other within that context, and the relationship between translators and their community. I think it's all connected. And that's one of the biggest things that came out of this project is to find ways to highlight those connections because a lot of times they're not visible. 
you know, you walk in and it's a very professional office and you don't think that they're necessarily a family, but they are in all of the different levels of translation. So the people that take in the document, the people who analyze it, the people who then proofread it, all of those people have to be in constant relation in order to complete a successful translation project. And you do, you know, you mentioned uh, these translation tools in your book, you know, Google Translate and others. How are people using these digital tools in the process of translation? How do they factor in, if at all? I think one of the really interesting things that I learned is that no translation tool is perfect and does all the things that a translator would do to successfully translate, but they do provide, this is what one of my participants said, that digital translation tools are sites of creativity. So when translators could not immediately think of the most specific translation, they might put a term into Google Translate or Lingue, like an online dictionary, word reference. There's a bunch of different tools, but when they can't think of a word right away, or maybe when they just want some options for translations, they'll input a term into the digital translation tool and come up with options. And then it's up to the translators themselves to negotiate meaning and figure out which of those options works best. And that's the really tough thing that a digital translation tool, at least as we have them now, are not very good at doing, is figuring out how is this one term that you're asking me to translate fitting in within the context of a sentence, paragraph, entire monograph that you're translating. For the translators that I worked with, the digital translation tools were really helpful in coming up with initial options for translation, but the work of localizing and getting that translation to be the most effective was the rhetorical navigation done by the translators themselves. But I think the human translators and the machine translators are in constant conversation too. That's interesting because the translation tool, like you said, as it exists right now, it can't do that rhetorical work that you're talking about of figuring out, you know, who is in front of me? What do they know? What specific aspect of the languages do they need or the language do they need to understand? Um, the Sort of the translation moment work that you mentioned earlier. But I like that idea of it being kind of an inventional tool, right? To help you do that work as a human translator. Right. An inventional tool. I think that's a really good descriptor. Well, and you um, you do multilingual work yourself um, at the site of Translation User Experience Research Center at the University of Texas, El Paso, where you work. What have you learned about translation from your own experience? Great question. So the work that I did with translators for my book project was in the Midwest and in Florida. And so those are very different communities of Spanish speakers and the communities of Spanish speakers that I've had the privilege to work with here in El Paso. And so one of the things that I learned immediately, and this is something that Bati is probably like, yes, of course, you should have known that. <laughs> but one of the things that I learned immediately is that here in the border, you know, people use what they call like a border language. And so my notion of Spanish being totally separate from English, especially as a professional translator, you want to choose English or Spanish, that kind of goes out the window here and people are blending all the languages in professional context. I knew that people, of course, do that in home context or in day-to-day conversations everywhere. But here in professional context, if you have a what might be deemed a traditionally translated Spanish flyer, for instance, it's not going to be effective with the local community because of just the complex history that people have with Spanish and the violence that people experienced when trying to speak Spanish and preserve their Spanish on the borderland. 
And so one of the things that I have learned is figuring out ways to work with the community to localize translations to sort of echo that border language more directly so that it is effective for the community, while at the same time kind of pushing back on the notion that we still need to use traditional Spanish here in El Paso, which is kind of something that is still upheld as something that we need to do. So more institutional, like professional organizations might say, yes, we need to do everything in formal Spanish. But if you talk with the community, that formal Spanish is not the Spanish that is going to get them to come to the meeting or show up at the event, if that makes sense. So it's a negotiation of stakeholders with our translation work here in El Paso, I think. That's really interesting. So it's really is about the needs of those particular users and speakers. You know, we might just kind of like professors want a very particular type of language, but you know, it may not resonate with students. And here you're saying it's the same kind of thing where, or, or technical communicators may want a very particular type of language that may not resonate with users. You're saying the same thing here, right? It's a, a particular way of speaking a particular type of Spanish and English that's going to really resonate with the particular people you're trying to reach. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Language ideologies are so complicated. And I think scholars who do work in African American languages, when you're talking about English and English variations, have been telling us this for a really long time. And so language ideologies are so embedded into the history of our community that it's really hard to fight back against those notions and ideals and to say, no, actually, the Spanish that the community uses is the one that we need to use in these professional contexts because we're trying to still communicate with people. And so when we do that, we need to use the language that is most effective in those contexts. But that doesn't always work. And so I think our job at the research center is to be that in-between space where we can talk with the community and also talk with professional organizations to come up with tools and technologies and systems that are usable for both stakeholders within this local context. Great. Well, thanks so much, Laura. I really enjoyed talking about this with you and keep up the great work. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is great.